0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And you might have noticed this week that Pompeii has been in the news yet again. They have made another extraordinary touching new discovery this time from a villa just outside of pompeii dating to that infamous day in 79 a.d when mount vesuvius erupted and a series of pyroclastic surges swept down and engulfed famous ancient settlements such as herculaneum and pompeii now to talk through the story of ad 79 the story of the eruption and its aftermath i was delighted to get back on the show the one and only, the brilliant classicist Daisy Dunn. Daisy has been on The Ancients once before to talk about Catullus, Rome's most erotic poet, which you can find in our Ancients library, and it was great to get her back on the show to talk through the story of AD 79. Here is Daisy Dunn. Daisy Dunn, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: In this case... Pompeii, it's just been in the news all of this week.
2: It has. It's one of those sort of great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. I think so every other year it seems there's something fantastic being found. And I think at the moment there's a lot because there's been a great excavation project taking place. There's been something called the Great Pompeii Project, which has been a sort of hugely well-funded projects to sort of restore and excavate and to discover what else is, is under there. And yeah, the last week we've had fantastic news of two more humans being discovered at one of the sites.
1: And what, do we know anything more about these two humans at the moment? I know it's a, a brief, do we have any real idea about them?
2: We have a fair idea. And um, so to put it into context, we found... We, not me personally, I wish. Um, but two, two humans have been discovered in an area called Civita Juliana, which is about 700 meters northwest of Pompeii. So just outside of the city proper. And it's two men, it's thought, looking at the build of them. And they look slightly different from one another. So they were found in a little room off a cryptoporticus. And a cryptoporticus is a long sort of covered walkway in rather a nice villa. And they were sort of lying down on the ground. And one of them, they think, is probably aged 18 to 25. And people looked at him and they they think that some of his vertebrae in his spine are quite compressed. And from that, they've said maybe he was involved in some kind of manual labour. The other man is slightly taller. We're not talking tall here. I'm thinking, I think it's about 162 centimetres or something, which I'm not quite sure. I'm not very good at my convergence, but I think that's about five foot three, five foot four.
1: Forgiven. (laughs) Yes.
2: And I think they said that he was slightly older, so aged between about 30 and 40, and had a sort of cloak on his body. And one of the things that's really interesting is to see how the media has kind of reacted to this. And straight away, people have said in the papers, Here we've got a man and his slave, because looking at these compressed vertebrae, it would be unexpected to find a man who was aged 18 to 25 with that kind of condition of his body. But having said that, that's quite a conclusion to leap to, isn't it? It's difficult to say that that's a slave. I mean, it's possible like a a considerable proportion of the population of Pompeii were slaves so it's possible but on that evidence alone it's very difficult to say who he was in relation to the older man and and the other interesting thing is they said uh, have a look at the older man he's wearing a cloak and that's a piece of evidence of his status and his wealth and that again is very very sort of problematic as evidence goes because what we know actually looking at a lot of the bodies which have been found in Pompeii is that they very often had wooden cloaks on them. And if you think about it, it's really kind of sensible. You have all this sort of burning pumice falling down on you. In the middle of an eruption, you're going to put on your thickest layers and venture out. You're not going to go out wearing something skimpy, are you? are going to be burned. So that in itself is very, very difficult, um, again, to sort of use as evidence of who this person was. But the fact is we've got two people who were found there. Um, their skeletons were buried within the volcanic deposit and the archaeologists poured plaster into the deposit left behind by their bodies to preserve their final shapes. And at least one of these men had his hand in this kind of, we call this pugilistic pose, a sort of boxer pose. And that's evidence that he died of a result of the sort of intense heat that was kind of when he was caught up in the pyroclastic flow, which buried them. Um, that's kind of a, a very common cause of death of a lot of the victims of Pompeii, sort of thermal shock. I find it
1: absolutely astonishing what you're saying there. I mean, all these new discoveries that seem to come out of Pompeii, is like we see several times a year, all these amazing new discoveries, they seem to be telling us so much more about the people and the eruption. But at the same time, they're also creating all these new questions that we're considering at the same time.
2: I think this is this is the classic thing with with Pompeii and sort of the general area. you think as soon as you find something you think fantastic this is going to answer a load of these mysteries that we still have hanging over us sort of two thousand years later. but actually almost every new piece of evidence that comes to light actually just throws up a dozen more questions and sort of complicates the picture even further, but that's what I think what makes this area of history just so interesting because you can never find the absolute answer. There's always something that leads you into another path. And as a historian, that's what you love. You love these sort of never-ending labyrinths that you can sort of enter into and kind of interpret in new ways and kind of build up a bigger picture from what's coming to light all the time.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And just sticking a bit longer on this new discovery before going on to the eruption itself, we have this new discovery. And just to confirm, this isn't in Pompeii itself itself. It's nearby Pompeii.
2: It's nearby. So I think it's about 700 meters northwest of sort of central Pompeii. Um, so there the was sort of a lot of villas, larger villas in the sort of surrounding area. And I think one thing when we're thinking about Pompeii, we think of it very much as sort of an urban center, but actually it was very, very heavily involved in agriculture. Lots of people had orchards and farms, people were growing food. So. It was quite a rustic area in in, in in some ways. I mean, we have sort of people with rustic outbuildings, people with their own wine presses, all of this going on at the same time. So it's it's not quite the sort of picture of this, you know, very neat little city that you might have in mind. It's sort of a, a bit more sprawling and spacious than that. Well, you
1: mentioned wine culture, you mentioned agriculture, and you mentioned all these villas surrounding Pompeii there. And let's then look at Pompeii just before the eruption, because from what you're saying, and from what the archaeology seems to suggest, this was a thriving centre for trade, for, for viticulture, for agricultural trade.
2: Very much so. Yes. People were sort of contributing to the sort of trade and market by growing things such as figs. Figs, were very, very popular in Pompeii and Herculaneum. Cabbages were grown here. About a century before the eruption, Pompeii was a great centre for producing sticky fish sauce. We might have heard of this garum rather a foul thing which they sort of poured on everything but like our ketchup today sort of fermented fish basically is what went into it and they sort of made this in these large vats Um, and what we know is that in in Pompeii this was quite popular at the time but then it was sort of superseded by industries elsewhere so particularly in Claudia in southern Spain they had this vast processing plant for fermented fish products there so Pompeii's industry in that area kind of wanes. So by the time of the eruption, its focus was very, very much on viticulture. And I think it's really interesting when you look at one of the really iconic wall paintings that's come out of Pompeii, you have a picture of That's very probably Vesuvius. And you have the wine god Bacchus. And he's actually wearing this very sort of funky, um, grape outfit. And he's sort of presiding over all these vineyards. And you can see all these vines growing all the way up Vesuvius. And I think when you look at that picture, you think this is not the picture you have in mind. You look at Vesuvius today, you think of it as being in this very, very virulent, quite frightening place when you look at, um, the volcano in itself. It's a real sort of force. But I think, When you look at it in that picture, you see it through the eyes of the people who were living in Pompeii at that time. We have a source, for example, describing it as um, a vineyard-covered mountain. That was how it was seen. It was seen to be green. It was a place of great abundance and fertility, and people were were growing vines there. This was very much the prime place where wine was being produced. It It was the main source of wine production for Rome, supplying Rome in this period, for example. And obviously the eruption devastated that, you know, that whole sort of source of its prosperity really fell away with the eruption. So that was a really, a real turning point in the history of Pompeii. And talking about sort of being, being a, a place of great prosperity, at the same time, I think it's really important to bear in mind that about sort of 16, 17 years prior to the eruption, it suffered a really devastating earthquake. So that's in the year AD 63. And so when we look at the remains of Pompeii today, you're seeing lots of fantastic things left behind. But you're also seeing evidence that the city was sort of very much being rebuilt in the period. So when it was destroyed finally by Vesuvius, there were still things which were unfinished and things which were being recovered and sort of remade after this earlier devastation.
1: It's amazing, you said, from that wall painting and everything, to have an idea of what the Romans thought of Vesuvius, what the Pompeians thought of Vesuvius before the eruption. Because from what you're saying, it sounds like it had this association with, with wine growing. Did they know that it was a dangerous volcano? Did they have any idea of this at all?
2: I believe not, actually. I mean, I'm going on, particular that description I just gave of it being a vineyard-covered mountain, that came from the natural history of Pliny the Elder who was a great encyclopedist, he was also admiral of the fleet nearby in the Bay of Naples at this time. And there's no evidence that I found anyway in any of the ancient sources where anyone's describing this as a volcano. And what's really interesting is the same figure, Pliny the Elder, he described lots of the volcanoes of the world within this reference book that he wrote, The Natural History. And he did not include Vesuvius in that volcano section at all. And what we now know, thanks to scientific analysis of, of the area, is that Vesuvius had been dormant for about 700 years before it erupted in AD 79. So there's absolutely no reason why anyone would have expected it to be anything other than this wonderfully fertile green mountain.
1: And I guess this also explains why there seem to be so many elaborate villas, this perhaps an ancient Roman Beverly Hills, stretch <laughs> all along the side of Vesuvius.
2: Yes, exactly. I mean, you think that if people were aware of it, they might have been slightly more cautious. I say that, but then look at it today. Again, it's very, very closely, very, very built up but again. And I think, you know, there is that real sort of interesting fact that people were and are prepared to live within a danger zone. I think that's very much built into the Roman mindset as well. Um, I think it's interesting when you look at some of the decorations of these villas, for example, you find in one of them, at least a wonderful mosaic in the dining room of a skeleton. and He's holding two bottles of wine. And it's very much this idea that people are living, you know, with a, an awareness that death can come at any time. It's a real sort of carpe diem attitude and almost a sort of, you know, willingness just to, to sort of embrace that and to accept that that is part of life is this sort of realisation that death can come at any time. So you wonder actually whether they, if they did know that it was an active volcano and can blow at any moment, whether they'd have done things any differently. I'm, I'm not 100% sure that they would have done.
1: 100%. Was it worth the risk, as it were, as you said, if it hadn't been active for 700 years or so? And Daisy, you mentioned just there the other main P word of this discussion, Pliny, because... For the eruption itself, we've got this amazing archaeology, but we're also gifted with this brilliant contemporary literary source of the eruption.
2: Yes, we are incredibly lucky when it comes to the eruption of Vesuvius to have one or other two eyewitness accounts of the eruption itself. And this is two letters which are written by Pliny the Younger, who was 17 years old when Vesuvius erupted, so a mid a boy, really, And his uncle was Pliny the Elder who wrote the encyclopaedia. And he, the uncle had a villa somewhere near Vesuvius, a place called Mycenaeum, which is about 30 kilometres away from the volcano. And Pliny the Younger was staying with his uncle and his mother at this villa when the eruption began. And, uh, I don't you want to go into this whole story now, but go it's. Go on, absolutely. <laughs> don't
1: worry. You can, we can. Uh,
2: so obviously it's sort of one of my favorite stories coming out of the ancient world because it's true. The elder Penny was alerted by his sister to this amazing cloud, which was rising in the distance. That's all they saw at the beginning. It was sort of early afternoon. And he wanted to go and have a closer look at it. So he sort of got his shoes, had a look and thought, I really, really want to go and inspect this at closer quarters. Bear in mind, he's, you know, a natural scientist is writing this great monumental encyclopedia. He's a very, very curious man. He wants to see what's going on. And as he's also Admiral of the Fleet, he has this whole fleet at his disposal. So he says to his nephew, I'm going to go and have a look. Would you like to come with me? Uh the 17-year-old boy says, no, I'd rather stay at home with <laughs> with mum and get on with my my research, my studies. So wow. he stays with his books. <laughs> it's a very unusual, cho- unexpected choice, maybe. But... um, ultimately a sensible one. So the elder Pliny goes off with the fleet and he sails across the Bay of Naples. And as this happens, this cloud starts to rain pumice down upon him. And this pumice flow gets gets heavier and heavier. And ultimately, the pumice gets so thick that it actually forms kind of masses on the water. So Pliny the Elder can't actually go to the place where he wanted to. He'd actually received, just before he left, a a message from a friend of his who said she's just basically begging him for help. She said, we can't get out, you know, please bring help. So Pliny the Elder doesn't seem to be able to reach her. So he continues and he puts in where he can, which is at Stabii, which is uh, about 16 kilometers from the volcano. And he meets up with a friend there and he kind of lives out the rest of the eruption at that site. And all of this information comes to us from these two letters, which were written to the historian Tacitus by his nephew, who meanwhile is kind of witnessing the whole thing, but from slightly further away at Mycenae.
1: You mentioned the pumice storm just then. The pumice storm, is this one of the first real visible indications that the eruption is starting?
2: Yes, it is. And it's immediately unclear to people and clearly to to the two pennies what this is. It's it's a cloud and the younger Penny compares it to an umbrella pine tree in its shape, it's sort of that kind of shape as a kind of trunk and then a kind of branches coming out of the top. And the pumice it starts off quite white, it, it turns gradually more grey and heavier. I mean, it went on for hours and hours and hours. And this is kind of what becomes really problematic when Pliny the Elder actually meets up with his friends where he where he is at Stabii. And their whole villa is actually being sort of rained upon so heavily that they realise that if they don't leave that villa now, they won't be able to later because the, the pumice gets so high outside their doorway, they're actually going to be sealed into the villa. So they have to escape that way. And presumably other people were actually sort of, you know, reined in entirely by by this pumice flow. And then, you know, that's kind of followed by these pyroclastic flows and surges and uh, the, the, the layers build up and up and up.
1: Well, just just keep on that for the moment. So as Pliny is travelling across the bay towards Debi on his own quest, on his own journey, at the same time, the pumice cloud is, I'm guessing it's also raining at this time, down on Pompeii and for several hours.
2: It is, yes. Suddenly, when you look at different cities and towns in the area, they all seem to experience this slightly differently. So the at Herculaneum, for example, isn't heavy at all. At Pompeii, it seems to get heavier into the next morning. So it goes on probably till about 7am, I think. So it's something that people haven't experienced before and it causes, as it gets heavier, buildings to to fall down. And you have to bear in mind, at the same time as this, you've got earthquakes going on. So there's a whole sort of situation of various things happening at once and obviously causing confusion and panic.
1: Well, confusion and panic, it must have felt like the end of the world. Do we have any evidence at this time that there seemed to be, been, with the people of Pompeii, a mass exodus from the city as they see all this occurring around them, all this Armageddon?
2: We think that a lot of people did actually manage to escape in time. I mean, this is one of the, the million-dollar questions, again, for for classes today, is how many people died and how many people survived, how many people got away from the eruption. And so far, it's been a question, again, an answer that's eluded us. People still actually sort of dispute how many people lived in Pompeii at this time. This is something which is hotly contested. I'd say somewhere in the region of ten to 15,000. Of the number of bodies we found... Somewhere between a thousand and twelve hundred, so that would suggest that the the vast majority managed to get out. But bear in mind that not all of Pompeii has been excavated yet. We've got two more found this week. You've then got sort of areas of Pompeii where you found evidence of, of people actually trying to escape. There's an area, for example, called I think it's called the Garden of the Fugitives. And this is kind of almost a vineyard type area. And it has sort of 13 people were found there. And they seem to have been probably trying to get towards one of the gates when they were overwhelmed by volcanic matter. So it's very, very difficult to say who got away and and (laughs) who didn't. But I think, you know, there is good evidence that the people did manage to sort of in the early stages of the eruption elude you know, the, the worst that was to come, whereas other people who maybe were more frail or more infirm, more simply sort of reluctant to give up their property, you know, prefer to stay where they were. And probably the two that were just been found, the fact that they were in a, in a cryptoporticus in a kind of covered area, suggests maybe they thought they were going to be safer there sort of taking shelter under a building than sort of actually going out into the open and being rained on by all of the pumice and by the ash and everything that followed.
1: So is that something that we're seeing in the archaeology over the years and including this most recent find from Pompeii and the surrounding area that we're seeing a lot of the bodies of the people, the unfortunate victims of this natural disaster, they were trying to find places of safety underground or in shelter, as what they thought.
2: I think very much so. I think a case in point is that through much of our history, people thought that most people from Herculaneum, for example, had managed to escape. And it was only in the 80s, the early 80s, that people realised they came across all these boat stores near the shore where they found hundreds of skeletons where people had taken cover in these kind of archways very very narrow archways and until that time people thought you know that not many bodies had been found in her claim and clearly everyone got out but that, that was only 40 years ago it's not that long ago that they suddenly came across all these hundreds of human remains all crowded together trying to obviously seek safety in a very covered sheltered area it's just unfortunate that that kind of Situation would not have saved them from the absolutely catastrophic heat of the pyroclastic flows. I mean, people would have died upon impact uh, with the heat. I think when you read the scientific descriptions of how those people would have died, it's it's, it's incredibly grim.
1: Yeah, incredibly so. And you mentioned it there, the pyroclastic flow. We have got to really talk about that, the end product of this eruption, as it were. So after the pumice cloud. This early morning, this early morning, it seems this must have been a morning like no other. It mustn't have felt like a morning. It must have been completely dark.
2: Yes. I mean, one of the fantastic descriptions that Pliny the Younger left behind is he he likens it. He says it's it's like night, but it's darker than any night. It's, he it's like sitting in a study where someone's switched out the lamp or blown out the lamp, you know, in a darkened room. So to be in a situation that's been darker than any other morning Known to man, I mean, it defies belief. You, I mean, that's such a kind of poignant description. I think you read that, you think, God, I and mean, that really must have been terrifying. And obviously, no electricity then, very very limited light. People were carrying torches to try and, and guide their way outside. But it's it's frightening at the same time. in mean, Pliny the Younger, even though he's thirty kilometres away. He's terrified of being trampled by the crowds who are trying to make their escape. I mean, that seems a legitimate worry. It's not let alone sort of all of the, the volcanic matter that's around. us. the actual sort of force of the people that poses a risk to life. Yeah. So, so what
1: is Pliny witnessing at Mycenae at this time, a bit further away from the volcano? You mentioned so he's seeing all of these people making their way through the city.
2: He is. He's seeing huge crowds of, of, of panicking people. I mean, he can only really imagine how bad it is that much closer to the volcano. He doesn't know if his uncle is dead or alive. In the course of his escape, he actually bumps into one of the friends of his uncle, who says to him, his mother, why are you still here? I mean, if your uncle was here, he'd be telling you to to get away. If he's dead, he'd want you to survive him. So he kind of hastens them along and they kind of begin on on a sort of chariot ride through this, and they realise they have to get off and, and continue their their journey by foot, because it's the only way they can do it. But they're seeing absolutely incredible things. I mean, at one point, the the sea seems to be kind of sucked back into itself, Younger says. and um, We're not quite sure whether this is just in the further effect of the eruption, or whether it's beginning of a tsunami. But he sees all this kind of like stranded um, sea life, you know, in its wake. I mean, the whole thing is beyond words in many ways. I mean, reading these letters, you're, you kind of get breathless, like reading this and just, trying to imagine what it was like in those really, really desperate moments.
1: Is that one of the things, in yourself being such an esteemed Roman historian, when you're trying to look at look at these works of figures like Catullus or for Pliny, when they're writing these amazing, amazing works, trying to get into their, their minds, perhaps, to say, or what they were seeing at that time, but what they were thinking yeah. uh, from our 21st century mindset, it must be one of the most difficult things out there
2: it is it is it's 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 really difficult because so I think you forget there's a real kind of risk I think with this period in history when you you look at things like the casts which have just been produced of these two dead people or any of the others which have been found to date and you see them and you think oh wow isn't that amazing And there's kind of this sort of slightly lurid aspect to it or you look at them almost as, as works of art and you kind of forget that these are the remains of of, of real people and what they've been through and I think when you read the letters of the Younger Pliny in conjunction with um, all of the sort of archaeological evidence, you have to kind of appreciate that these people were going through something which, like, none of them had ever anticipated before. And the kind of descriptions that Pliny the Younger gives, he says that people start to kind of elaborate what was happening. People kind of magnify it. People say, kind of paint a worse picture. In some situations of, of, of the destruction than is actually occurring and other people kind of trying to make sense of it that people will talk about giants trampling the landscapes. There are descriptions by other historians of, of uh, people in Rome and people I you think in Rome the sky was went all dark people had no idea what was happening there either. People were thinking that this was the end of the world. I mean, what would you say if you're not in Pompeii and we focus so much on, on Pompeii and on the Bay of Naples? That's the epicenter of this. But to people that much further away, the impact was still felt miles and miles and miles, hundreds of miles away, even in, in North Africa and Syria. The dust from the volcano is said to have reached these places as well. I think you've got to try and put yourself in, in, in the head of those people as well, where you've got no kind of information coming to you you've just got these strange kind of you know happenings in the sky above what do you say to yourself what do you imagine i mean i think the only explanation you could give would be that this was the end of the world
1: Absolutely, and then you can also, I guess, you you think the sounds as well—the completely unusual sounds that would have they would have heard whether you're on Pompeii and then obviously you have no more chance after that. But if you were in my scene or whatever, and once again, it must really emphasise this idea that they could have thought that this was the end of the world as they knew it.
2: Yeah, you're completely right. I mean, with the sounds as well, that's that's one thing that really comes, I think, across when you read uh, these eyewitness accounts. You get. Descriptions of people calling to their loved ones, the wailing of children, um, trying to sort of make out each other's voices in this kind of melee of of people trying to escape. And when I was writing about this, I was really struck by the parallel. It just seems so similar in many ways, this description to um, when you read Aeneid, the Aeneid by Virgil he describes what it's like in the underworld essentially he describes all these sort of infants weeping at their mother's breasts and things like this and the description's you know really remarkably similar and it is almost like they're in they've kind of entered this this hell as as, as described by the poets
0: selling a little or a lot Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
1: Hello, host of Dan Snow's History at Podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts, it's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week, on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover, or just looking for a good tale, you want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. We're talking about the Aeneid, keeping on that just quickly, because one of the things I found really interesting from your book, The Pliny's on this, was the parallel, it was, as it were, between Pliny and his mother in Mycenaeum, and that of Aeneas' And his own mother trying to escape Troy. I mean, that's remarkable in itself.
2: Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, think this is one thing we really warm to this 17 year old boy. Um, his mother says, you must go on without me. She said to me, I'll slow you down. Please escape and save yourself. Don't, don't save me. But the younger Penny says, no, no, no. And he, he, he kind of takes her by the hand and ensures that they escape together. I mean, this really evokes to a classicist description in the Aeneid where, they're trying to escape from burning Troy, and Aeneas actually loses his mother because just in the confusion of people leaving again you've got this whole sort of band of refugees desperate to escape and he loses her and you know it's just it's just a devastating thing and you almost kind of see Penenga trying desperately just to stop you know stop himself from repeating the mistake of of Aeneas
1: and as Pliny and his mother are, and Pliny's trying to make sure he doesn't repeat the mistake of Aeneas as they're trying to flee from Mycenaeum. In this same morning, is this roughly the same time that the devastating pyroclastic flow hits the people of Pompeii who are still in that city?
2: Yes, so we know, we think there are about six pyroclastic surges. And Pompeii experiences, um, several of these, but I think there were, there were two which are very, very significant. The first of these, um, seems to have kind of quite a limited effect on the city. But it's the second one, which seems to absolutely devastate and kill anyone who's still remaining there. And certainly the, the two people just found seem to have died. They can tell this by looking in the, the nature of the kind of sediment. Um, that these two people seem to have died in that second pyroclastic flow which was kind of just so much material just being deposited on top of the the city. It's just monumental. This The, the whole effect of this was beyond words. I mean, it, it changed the whole kind of shoreline of of this part of the world. It pushed it out. I think that's one of the confusing things when you visit Pompeii and you visit Herculaneum, You you forget that actually originally before this eruption, they were a lot closer to the water. Especially when you look at Herculaneum, you see these boat arches where people were trying to take cover, you think these boat targets, I mean, it seems ages you know, from, from the water, but it's just the whole coastline is different. It's changed as a result of this eruption. I mean, the effects of this are just absolutely massive. It's almost inconceivable today. Well, let's
1: keep on the effects then for a bit. You mentioned how the, the coastline seems to change with the eruption. It was one of the, like, the, the greatest and long-lasting effects of the Vesuvius eruption, the whole layout, shall we say, of Campania, the region of Campania?
2: Yeah, it it, it changes. It, it, it just has a different um, feel to it afterwards. And I think when you rediscover the, these great villas, you have to bear in mind that most of them have these wonderful sea views, which again, today, you can't really appreciate necessarily. Particularly, I mean, when you look at Herculaneum, Herculaneum, I think it's absolutely fascinating. It should be visited just as much as Pompeii. In, in some ways, it's easier to get a sense of it as an ancient, bustling town than it is Pompeii because it's that much smaller. I think its population was only probably about five to 6,000, so probably about half the size of Pompeii. But it's a lot wealthier in many ways. The, the villas which are found there are absolutely monumental. And I mean, one of them has the oldest library surviving from the Greco-Roman world and sort of the biggest collection of statues found anywhere in Greece or Rome. And they were these great maritime villas and you, you just don't get that kind of sense of, of, of them today necessarily.
1: And you mentioned it right there, Herculaneum, Steviai, these other places that are affected by the eruption. But Daisy, why is it, when we think of the Vesuvius eruption, why is it that Pompeii, is the town that we almost always think of? Why Pompeii rather than Herculaneum or any of the others?
2: I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's been so celebrated by writers and by artists. Um I mean, everyone from uh, Edward Bulwer to uh, Robert Harris has written of of Pompeii and sort of the last days there, and um, fantastic books coming out of it. And I think because it was well excavated. Quite early on, so from, um, particularly also from, from the 18th century, but particularly in the 19th century, a lot of these bodies were, were found there. So it seemed more human. And I think it has something to do with the human aspect of it. Herculaneum actually began to be excavated slightly earlier than Pompeii. But as I said, we didn't really have the discovery of, of human remains at that early stage in the same degree as we did, uh, in Pompeii. I think with Pompeii, I mean, there's just so much to see there in terms of, of, Daily life, that you're just immediately surprised by the fact that people had shops, for example, the front of their villas, that people had a kind of laundrette, the Frilonica, um, that, you know, there were about 30 bakeries or something there, and it just, you can really imagine it as a fully functioning, Town, and I think people like to almost draw that parallel between their own kind of town and and Pompeii. Uh, and I think, you know, I mean, I personally say that there's you can just as well do that with, with Herculaneum and with Stabiae and with some of these other places. But I just think that Pompeii just because there's so much there, it's it's so much bigger. I think than you anticipate when you when you visit.
1: And it was subject, from what you're saying there, to some remarkable archaeological excavations during the 19th century
2: particularly in the 19th century. I think a lot happened in the 19th century. I mean, it, initially it was discovered by accident and people sort of, you know, engineers trying to dig canals, that sort of, sort of thing. But standard, yeah. <laughs> standard yep, yep, yep. sort of stuff. <laughs> um, but in the 19th century, it kind of came into its own because uh, that's when we got sort of a new archaeologist came along called Fiorelli. And he was the one who masterminded this whole technique of how to preserve the shapes of the ancient dead. So he's the one who said, oh, look, I've left a deposit. We can pour plaster into the cavity left in the in the kind of volcanic deposit and then preserve the shapes of of these ancient people. And that's where we get all these sort of casts from that we've seen before. So that was kind of an exciting time. Initially, I have to say, sort of a lot of the early excavations looking sort of prior to that period in particular, very, very slapdash, like really, really badly done, people kind of going in and raiding and taking out the kind of wall paintings, cutting stuff out and actually causing more damage than than good. I mean, it's, it's almost comparable to Schliemann in, in Troy. It's really, really um made a mess of the situation. I think that's one of the situations, one of the, the explanations really for why people often ask me today, well, why aren't we excavating more of Pompeii and Herculaneum? because so much of both these places remains covered over. But actually, archaeologists today have to focus a lot on trying to shore up and preserve what they have actually uncovered. Because a lot of these places are very, very fragile. Um, and part of this is a result of tunnelling and stuff that's happened, you know, for centuries earlier. We've got evidence of people tunnelling even before that they, the, either of these places were, were officially excavated. I mean, this probably began in Roman times themselves. I mean, what we know is that people actually returned to the site after the eruption. And people did kind of break into homes and steal treasures that were sort of remaining there. I mean, this kind of began from from the very beginning and it kind of continued through history. So this whole kind of history of looting very much accompanies the history of Pompeii.
1: Wow, I didn't know anything about that whatsoever. The picture in my mind was that this was just so many layers of ash that no one would have been able to get through at all. But from what you're saying, that there was looting throughout history of this site.
2: Yeah, it, it happened. I think certainly, I think there's evidence from the 14th century, even of people starting to tunnel through some of this kind of concretized material. Obviously wow. very, very difficult. And I think there were probably areas um, of Pompeii and Herculaneum which were easier to access than others obviously there are are parts which are completely covered under meters and meters and meters which no one was going to get to but at the same time people were dropping treasure and all kinds of things we know looking at the cast people kind of gathered up bags of money, bags of jewellery, people put on as many rings and things as they could to try and escape. But obviously things were dropped in the process. All kinds of things were discovered as part of the excavation process where you see people trying to make off with their livelihood as much as possible. But this left the door open for other people to come in and try and make the most of.
1: And Daisy, the, the surviving arts and architecture and, and the shape of the bodies themselves of those who unfortunately perished in this natural disaster almost 2,000 years ago. They must, they must give us an invaluable insight into the people of Pompeii, their lifestyle, what they were doing, etc., etc.
2: They do, yes. I mean, I think this comes with a note of caution, which I think all historians have to give, which is whenever you look at these casts, I mean, there's been a great history of people looking at them thinking, oh, look, that person looks like they're hugging their friend, or look, are these two maidens? And actually, scientific analysis later, years later, discovered that these are two men. It's very difficult. Some of the shapes actually preserved by this kind of process of, of casting these people in plaster They've actually sort of incorporated other bits and bobs, other kind of cloaks and all kinds of things and given a kind of a false impression of what's actually underneath them. They can sometimes tell quite a kind of confusing story, but other times you have quite a clear picture. I mean, when you see people huddled together, obviously trying to comfort each other in their final moments, you can't help but be touched by that. Mm. And those stories, I mean, they don't really need words. They kind of speak for themselves. You see them together, you see children Clearly, much smaller figures with their their parents being completely helpless and kind of just you know, absolutely knocked back by the force of of the eruption, and it is devastating. And I mean, I think I you know I just try and sort of remind everyone who looks at these people that this isn't some like fantastic sight. And I think it's a very sort of Victorian thing. Particularly, it was popular in the Victorian pe- period. Of people kind of played this up almost almost like a fairground effect. You know, people looked at this almost as a sort of source of amusement and entertainment. But it's, it's really a, a very tragic human story at the end of the day.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, talking about hotly debated topics and slightly confusing issues surrounding this whole period of ancient history, Daisy, quite recent archaeology has made suggestions that the traditional date Surrounding the eruption of Vesuvius in seventy nine A.D. may not be as accurate as we first thought.
2: No, this is another. We were talking earlier about the sort of confusion that's caused by excavations, thinking we hope this is going to answer our questions, but actually throws up a dozen <laughs> more questions. This the date has been another of those big, big dilemmas um, and sort of question marks that hangs over the eruption. When did Vesuvius erupt in the year A.D. seventy nine? The confusion really basically comes down to the fact that these eyewitness accounts of Penelope the Younger are preserved in various manuscripts. And when scholars were reading them a long time ago, they decided that they said that the eruption happened on the 24th of August, 79 AD. And this is one of many dates preserved in the manuscript, but kind of textually, it looked the most secure. So people went with that for ages. But then archaeologists started to look at the evidence and they said, well, hang on a minute. There's a lot of evidence here to suggest that the eruption happened far deeper into the year than August. I mean, for a start, you've got people in wooden cloaks. But As I said, that's not really evidence because people are covering themselves up. But then there are um, evidence of pomegranates. Um, people are having harvested wine already, which isn't traditionally done by that date in August. Uh, there is evidence of all kinds of things, um, all, all these sort of fruits and vegetables, which aren't necessarily sort of harvested at that time of year, all being around then. So people say it must have happened in, in later into autumn. And other things have come to light. So at some, some stage, someone found a coin, a silver denarius, which was there, and someone read it and thought, this is very exciting because this coin seems to say September. So that would suggest that it happened post-September. Then they reread this coin legend uh, a couple of years ago and discovered that the first person who read it actually read it wrong. And it couldn't be used as evidence after all. It was probably minted in sort of, July or August, so no help to us whatsoever. <laughs> uh, then a few years ago, someone found uh, an inscription. This is, it's a part of the latest uh, excavation. Very, very exciting. He found an inscription in charcoal, which mentions the date 17th of October. And it's just this sort of silly piece of graffiti talking about someone sort of eating too much or something I ate too much on the 17th of October. So that suggests that it happened after the 17th of October, because, I mean, and sort of fairly recently afterwards, because charcoal doesn't really survive long. You'd have thought if it rained or anything else, it would have disappeared. But at the same time, it doesn't give us a date at all. So now people we are looking at other pieces of evidence. So people look, for example, at the dispersal of the evidence. And that seems to suggest that the wind was blowing in a southeasterly direction. And that doesn't generally happen in August. So, I would say most evidence suggests it's it's into October at least, in 79 AD, and it's not that Pliny was necessarily wrong about this. I think it was to do with the manuscript tradition of it being kind of the the date going with the wrong date, essentially going with the date in that particular manuscript when they could have chosen one of these other dates. So I think October is probably a more a more probable uh, a date for for the eruption. But I think one thing that interests me, and one thing that I would say is. This isn't a question of it happening in summer versus autumn. You've got to bear in mind, Pliny the Elder, a great encyclopedist who died in the eruption, he said that autumn began on the 8th or the 11th of August. So whichever way you look at it, this is an autumn event. So, I mean, that's how I see it.
1: I just love what you were saying. That I just love how... Some of the smallest archaeological finds, whether it be a coin or whether it be these fruits, these pomegranates, I mean, that in itself is extraordinary organic material and how things as small as that can completely alter what people have thought for decades or even centuries.
2: Yeah, yeah, I can. And I think that's the thing. The more that comes to light, the more people are going to you know, question it and try. It. And who knows? Maybe there will be another inscription at some point, which will give us a more accurate date. But it seems at this stage unlikely, at least. It's more that we're getting building up a, a jigsaw as so often with this from looking at things like pomegranates that and that's what, 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 you know, what we're working with at this stage.
1: Talking about the effects of the eruption in, in Central 90, especially for the Romans, and we've talked about it earlier that there seems to be a lot of people who perhaps were able to get out before the main eruption, before the devastation really occurred. But do we know much? I mean, this seems really extraordinary and amazing, but do we know much about the the survivors of Vesuvius, as it were?
2: The survivor we know most about is the younger Pliny, because he's our only sort of person that we know the identity of who, who wrote about the eruption but we get sort of snippets in other authors as well of of what this meant what the eruption meant for the people of Naples and even for people living further afield I mean one poet for example called Statius he comments on he he says I mean will people ever believe what happened when these fields grow green again will people actually know what's buried beneath it and what's really striking is that a lot of vegetation appears to kind of recover and, and grow back within about 20 years of the eruption, which really isn't long at all. And there's evidence of people are going back there and, and that the area kind of regained its reputation for fertility and abundance in agriculture. I mean, so much so that the younger Pliny, his wife, became quite unwell, probably as a result of a miscarriage. And the one place she chose to go to to try and recover was Campania. And you think, actually, she could have gone anywhere and Plin the Younger had loads of villas all over Italy. She could have gone to any one of those. But no, she went to this area which had traditionally had this reputation for being a place of great health benefits. And it's astonishing to me that within 20 years it had regained that reputation. That said, you get uh, descriptions of, of, sort of the more immediate aftermath where we hear of people suffering terribly from this kind of pestilence which developed as a result of sort of the the volcanic material and people getting ill as a result of maybe going back and maybe breathing in a lot of the dust uh, which had settled so it was quite unpleasant obviously as a, as an area afterwards it wasn't really habitable to the kind of extent that it had been certainly when I mean, we hear of the emperor at the time titus actually rushes down there and tries to kind of put together a rescue attempt and try and salvage what buildings he can and sort of make sure that the privy purse doesn't really benefit from this natural disaster. And there's kind of, you know, some senators who try and put things back together as much as he can. But obviously, that's not possible. The fact that we're still working on this today is is testimony to that, really. But I think that's the most surprising thing for me, is, is how quickly this area kind of recovered, at least in the popular imagination.
1: It is quite interesting to think, isn't it, if someone who was able to escape Pompeii, a citizen of Pompeii, managed to escape it when the eruption occurred, could possibly go back 20 years or so later and see so much of it, well, the greenery of the area back as it was before the eruption.
2: It's astonishing, isn't it? And I, I think it's also the bravery. It kind of goes back to sort of what we were discussing earlier. And this doesn't seem to have had a kind of, I mean, it's always really hard to say this with, with the Roman sources, but mm. I mean, Pliny the Younger doesn't seem to be mentally Scarred by this. He's not worried especially for his wife going to this area in particular. He's not worrying there's going to be another, you know, terrible disaster which could happen at any time. This doesn't seem to be a concern. It's it's more that people see that the benefits of the area outweigh the risks. And I think that's that's really interesting. It says something about the mindset.
1: And how does witnessing the eruption of Vesuvius affect Pliny apart from what you've just mentioned there, like for the rest of his life?
2: I think. Well, that is the other really surprising thing. It, I mean, I don't get the impression that it, it does. I don't think it. I mean, you'd think wow. this would stay with you. You are seventeen years old. Your uncle has died. He seems to have suffocated on on the beach at Stabii when he was there trying to escape. Pliny the younger writes about these these things probably twenty five to thirty years after the events when Tacitus asks for a description of them, and he seems incredibly level headed in the way he describes them. And what we know with him is that within nine months of the eruption he's actually embarked upon his career. And we find him in Rome. He's joined this court um to become sort of a, a young junior lawyer. I mean, that doesn't seem like the action of someone who is so kind of, you know, shaken up by the disaster that he's not having to sort of but that's again, that's not a really Roman thing, is it? It's not a very sort of stoic way of, of thinking about it. I mean, I think it's it's a very modern reading to assume that everyone would have been you know, in some ways of really, really shaken by this and unable to live their lives in the same way that they had before. I mean, obviously, that must have happened to people who lost loved ones, their lives could not have been the same again. But we just we don't find that in the sources.
1: Do we have any other snippets uh, from others? And you you mentioned one earlier, but do we have any other snippets from later Roman writers who are recalling the events of Vesuvius and Pompeii and the aftermath or does Pliny, does he really stand out above the rest for the description?
2: He very much, I mean he's alone really with that description. I mean it's astonishing that we just don't really have anything else. What we know is that he wrote these two letters to Tacitus because Tacitus wanted to incorporate some of the information into what was probably his histories but that part of the book unfortunately is missing. So we might have had you know, a whole load more. And it would be been really interesting to see what Tacitus did with that information and how he incorporated it into his own storytelling. But we just don't find anything like it, really. We find little bits and bobs here and there. We find Cassius Dio, for example, talking about the eruption happening. He says it happens in late autumn. So again, that's another indication of the timing. But we just don't find this really you know, detailed description of what was going on and of the, the course of events. The rest of the story is very much told to us by what's on the ground and what's continuing to come out of the ground.
1: And you mentioned continuing to come out of the ground now. Do you think this latest find really emphasises, and we said it right at the start of the chat, how Pompeii and the area surrounding Pompeii, it's just got all this, on one level, horrible, but on the other level, extraordinary archaeology remaining to be uncovered that can tell us so much about this period in ancient history
2: exactly i think i mean looking at something like this it's just so exciting especially when you think i think this is the same area where i don't know if you remember remembering. it's about three years ago they found some horses with their harnesses still in place and that was all in the newspapers as well and you just think this is a story which is still evolving and the fact that such sort of important finds are coming up with fair regularity is is really significant. And, you know, I think it's only right that they still continue to find their place in, in our media today because they are incredibly important events and they're filling in a story which We all think we, we all think we know so well, but in many ways we don't. I think with everything that comes up, there's always more questions to be asked. Um, you get a sort of another perspective on things. I mean, looking at the art, for example, as well, that's coming out the last few years, a lot of the, the artwork is showing us sort of representations of myths, which we hadn't really seen so much of before, you know, quite sort of risque pictures a lot of the time and just, you know, very surprising things which tell us as much about life really as they do about death.
1: It is absolutely extraordinary. And there are those places in the Roman Empire like over 2,000 years ago that really seem to strike out. Pompeii being one of them. My mind instantly starts to think of the Vindolanda excavations as well with the tablets that they continue to reveal more about the daily life of these people on the frontier, Pompeii and elsewhere. It is extraordinary these sites from what exactly from what you were saying there in showing how this might have occurred almost 2,000 years ago. But we are still every year Every half year, uncovering so much more and learning so much more about these ancient societies.
2: And long may that continue to happen. I mean, I guess get so excited every time I, you know, open the newspapers and finding this sort of being, all being spoken about with such interest because I think, I mean, it, it puts paid to that whole idea of when I certainly when I started studying classics people saying what a remote thing what a remote subject to want to do how arcane how very cut off from from our world but I'm just so glad that this changed so much I think in the last 10 years certainly people seeing this is very much an interesting evolving story something that has impact upon the way that we live now and something that tells us you know something about ourselves as well as about the remote past as we see it
1: absolutely ancient history is very much alive and kicking it's where the cool kids of history stay daisy last thing your book on vesuvius and the
2: plinys is called it's called in the shadow of vesuvius a life of pliny it's essentially a biography of the two plinys that tells the story of the eruption and how they live their lives around it
1: fantastic daisy thank you so much for coming back on the show
2: my pleasure thank you